Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, good morning and welcome. My name is James Nysong. I'm one of the pastors here at Reach Life. And as I said earlier, we're continuing in our study through the book of Exodus. And um, at Reach Life Church, there is something that we, that we value and that we hope to be as a church. And that is one of our six, uh, seven core scriptures is that we want to be generationally minded. And when I say that we want to be generationally minded, that means that we want to, be, that we want to faithfully entrust the gospel of Jesus Christ to the next generation. We want to hand the baton of the gospel from our generation to the younger generation through what we call cross-generational discipleship. And parents, what, what I mean by that, what we mean by that is that instead of being always segregated from one another and divided, we want to be able to be a church community, a gospel-centered community that comes together and comes alongside of parents and assists them as they are the primary disciplers. But we want to assist you in raising your children. That means we want your children to be among us at times. Now, there's times like on a Sunday morning, a child may not be able to sit still in our services. So we, we, we offer what we call Reach Kids for four and under right now. Hopefully, as we grow, as we continue to take steps forward, we'll be able to increase that. But we want to just help you disciple your children. And a question I want you to think about uh, is as we're teaching our children, what is it that you want your child at the end of the day to remember? We teach a lot of things, but, but as they grow towards maturity, what do we want our children to retain? And as I've raised my children, I've had a goal. Uh, I've had a goal to, to teach them normal life skills like brushing your teeth, lifting the seat, flushing the toilet, things like that. Uh, to read, to write, to do arithmetic. But when it comes to the spiritual realm, there is one reality that, that I have sought to try to help our children understand. Now, of course, I want our children to understand the gospel of what Jesus Christ has done. And in that, what I have taught our children over the years is I've said, you know, you have one life. God has given you a gift, and it's, it's a one-lifetime, a once-in-a-lifetime adventure to walk through this world. And He has given you a life to do with as you will, to invest it as you will. And what I've tried to help our children see is, in light of what Christ has done for you, invest your life, knowing this, and this is the point I want them to remember. I want you to understand that Jesus, the King of the Jews, is coming back. That is one of the truths. One day, we all, whether you believe it or not, will stand before our Creator, Jesus, and give an account for the way that we have invested or not invested or squandered our lives that He's given us. That is a wonderful truth if we respond to Jesus, right? And in order to help my children uh, understand that or remember that, I wrote a song called, The King of the Jews is Coming Back. And I want to teach it to you this morning. Bear with me. I know this is, this is, this is kind of uh, childish in one way. 
but it's, it's called The King of the Jews is Coming Back. Now, we don't have slides for the song, but I'm going to teach them to you. Um, I don't think it's very difficult. It goes like this. The King of the Jews is coming back. The King of the Jews is coming back. The King of the Jews is... Oh, y'all have heard this. I see. Okay. <laughs> Now, I'm going to sing it for you once. It's got some hand claps, and then you're, I want you, I want to, do not leave me up here alone, okay? <laughs> All right, here we go. It goes, the king of the Jews is coming back. The king of the Jews is coming back. The king of the Jews is coming back. It has a very Jewish feel to it, Asian Jewish, somewhere in there. All right, is, have y'all got the words? All right, sing it with me. The king of the Jews is coming back. The king of the Jews is coming back. The king of the Jews is coming back. All right, that part you can just do. Do you get the point? The king of the Jews is coming. Now, it's got verses, and if parents, if you ever want that song, it is a very catchy song that that uh, you better not take my copy. I have not copyrighted, so do not take that. But anyway, you know, when we make as parents, as we, when we set up signs and memorials to help our children to understand the tr- biblical truths and understand who Jesus is, you know what we're doing? We're simply emulating what our Father in heaven has been doing for thousands of years, who has been doing throughout human history. I'm going to give an example like Noah's Ark. I don't know of anyone that does, hasn't at least heard about Noah's Ark. Now, not everyone understands all the implications, but Noah's Ark is one of those uh, memorials that God has set up to, to remind us that He is a God of judgment and a God of salvation. And it is a sign. The Ark of, of Noah is a sign. Now, remember, a sign points to a greater reality. When you came in here, there's a a sign that's on the side of this building that says Reach Life Church. That sign points to a greater reality, the people. And so the ark points to a greater reality, who is Jesus, right? And all who believed the message that was preached to them during Noah's time, all who believed it proved it by entering into the ark, and they were saved. Only eight people but they were saved. Those who did not believe were, uh, did not enter in and perished. But it's not because God did not make a way of salvation. That's something that we, we need to see all throughout Scripture. God is a God of judgment, but He makes a way of salvation for those who want to take it. And a lot of times the sign or the the memorial that God gives does not make sense during the time of the people. For example, why would you build a cruise liner on the top of a mountain when there has been no rain? Only because you believe God. Now, it's clear for us to see that now, but back then they had to walk by faith. And today we're going to be in chapter 12, as Megan read for us. And over the last um, season, God has been dealing with the bitter enslavement of his people. But today we're going to be in chapter 12, and I'm going to, or God is going to introduce to us another sign and memorial that is known as the Jewish Passover. It's, it's like the ark. It is meant to remind us that God judges and God saves. It is a sign 
that points to a greater reality. This one's, I told Terry this uh, yesterday, I said, man, if I cannot show what this sign uh, points to, then I don't need to be preaching. But this sign points to a greater reality, which is Jesus himself. And in the first 11 chapters of Exodus, God has been dealing with the bitter enslavement of his people who have been under the oppressive hands hand of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so God, what does he do? He brings about nine distinct plagues to overthrow the false gods of Egypt. Now, it's been said before that God isn't just wanting to get Israel out of Egypt. Okay, God is going to deliver them, but that's not all he's trying to do. He is trying to get Egypt out of Israel. And I say that is because Israel has been in Egypt for so long, we know that they were influenced and indoctrinated by the Egyptians. And they probably were convinced that the gods of Egypt were superior to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because their God had not come to deliver them yet. And so what does God do? Part of what he's doing is he's unleashing nine plagues to expose that those are false gods in Egypt, that he is the only living God who can save. That's the same truth that we we need to, to absorb today. It's the same message over and over. There's only one God who can save, and he has made a way, and only one way for us to be saved. Well, after the ninth plague, the Lord reveals that there's going to be one more plague, a tenth and final plague. And he, and in chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, Moses is standing before Pharaoh, and he tells them tells him exactly what is going to happen. Now remember, Moses has done this nine times before Pharaoh. Nine times he told Pharaoh, this is going to happen if you don't let the people go. And nine times, 100% of the times, it happened exactly as Moses said it was going to happen. So he says this, about midnight, this is God speaking, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who was behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Pharaoh is once again being warned, but from a hardened heart, he ignores the warning again, a tenth warning he ignores, and he refuses to let the people go. Therefore, many are going to perish under his leadership, under his power. And I think many would, would say, you know, I get it. Uh, I get it with Pharaoh. I understand God punishing him. Uh, he deserved what he, he got because of, of, of his unwillingness 10 times to respond. But there's an elephant in the room that I want to address, and it is this question. And you may be asking this as you've been reading through this. How can a loving and merciful God kill innocent people, especially infants and children? Because no doubt, some of these firstborn would have been infants and children. And because of accounts like this, there are 
some who falsely accuse our God of being a moral monster. There's actually a book that's been written by Paul Copen who would, who would say that, that asks the question, is God a moral monster? And he actually refutes that. Uh, I can't go into that this morning. That's not what this message is about, but I encourage for you to, to get that book and read it if you're struggling with this. But there are many who think that the Old Testament God is a God of wrath and of anger. For example, the renowned atheist Richard Dawkins. This is what he says. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Hey, that took a lot of practice at home this week. that's, That's hard. But you know, what's interesting to me is that Dawkins is really hyperly passionate and angry about a deity that he claims does not exist. But putting all that aside, I do agree that this topic, the death of the firstborn, is a difficult passage for, for, for me to fully wrap my mind around. I'm not going to tell you that I understand it, that I fully understand it. I, I, I wrestle with this, especially when it comes to the death of infants and children, not just in this passage, but just in life in general, I struggle with those types of things. Um, I don't, I've, got, I've got some theological uh, answers uh, that help, but they, at the end of the day, I still do not have a full just grasp on this topic. And it's very likely that this morning as I walk through this part of, the, of, of my message, it's, you're not going to get fully settled from my words. It's going to take the Word of God to do that, His Spirit. But I do want to say, even though I don't understand these things uh, fully, I do want to share some truths about our God that have strengthened my resolve against that view that our God is some kind of cosmic, bloodthirsty villain. Um, The truth is he is not. And I will not take that view just because I don't understand something fully. So here's a a couple of truths I want to share with you that that, uh, give me confidence that our God is not evil. Number one, God created everything. God created everything, and I'm going to add something, from nothing. I I encourage us all to just, when you're alone, meditate on that, that one truth right there. Out of nothing, God created everything. It says in Genesis 1.1, Joanna quoted this on MC on Tuesday night. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John chapter 1, verse 3, it says, All things were made through Him. All things were made through Jesus. And without Him, without Jesus, was not anything made that was made. Psalm 89, 11 says, The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. God brought everything into existence. 
and just by the raise of, of, of our hands, who of us were there when he did that? None of us, right? He brought everything into existence, and that includes you and me. And here's something that's all, I may have said, I can't remember if I said this here or at MC, but it's good. I'm going to say it again. Uh, do you realize there was a time you didn't exist? That is like, sit and think about that. So there was a point that you didn't exist and all of a sudden you existed and now you're always gonna, going to exist. But there was a time you did not exist. But God has always existed and we didn't create ourselves. Therefore, here's the point I want to get at. Because God created everything, he has the right to do anything with what he has created. He has the right. Just like, you know, I don't have the right to go into your house and rearrange your furniture, and you have the right to arrange your phone however you want it to be used. How much more the God who has created all things? Life is in God's hands, and he is the giver, and he is the taker of life. And it would be one thing, now, it would be one thing if God was insidiously evil like Dawkins and others uh, seek to make him out to be. But as God's people who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we know better than that. Um, he's not evil. Job, you remember Job? He was a righteous man, a rich man. He had everything anyone could want, and he lost everything. Job lost everything except for his wife, who stood behind him and said, curse God and die, okay? He lost everything. He lost his children in that. This is important to what I'm saying here. He lost even his, I think it was seven children that he lost, and yet in the midst, listen to this, in the midst of his sorrow, in the midst of his calamity, instead of shaking his fist in unbelief and anger at God and saying, how could you? He said this. He said, naked into this world I have come. And I'm going to leave it the same way. I didn't bring anything into this world. You, you brought me into this world. He said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. And then he said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. How can that be that someone could lose everything, even his health, and still say, God, you're good. Bless your name. It's because, God, uh, because Job knew that God not only was the creator of all things, he also knew that, that the creator of all things must be a little wiser than him, infinitely wise, and that means that he not only understands everything, but he knows how to skillfully apply knowledge for good. God knows how to do that infinitely. And so, you know, I don't know if you're like me. Sometimes, do you think you're smarter than God sometimes? Now, I wouldn't say it, although I just did, but sometimes I think I'm smarter than God. And here's how it comes out. If I, was, if I wouldn't have done it that way. If I was God, I wouldn't do it that way. And that's what people are saying when they're, they're reading the Scriptures. If I was God, I wouldn't do it that way. How can we, who are finite and, and broken, know more than God? Secondly, not only is He infinitely wise, He is perfectly righteous. Now, that word righteous, it means that every action 
every action that God takes towards his creation will always be right. He will always make the right decision. And it will always be a just decision. And it will always be a pure decision. There's never evil in God's decisions towards us as he walks, as he, because he is righteous. He lives from that. He, um, it's not like he, he just does righteous things. He is righteous. He can't not do the right thing. Thirdly, and this is the one that I typically go to when, I, when things just don't make sense and I'm tempted to question God. Here it is. God is good. God is good. Um, Matthew 7, 11, Jesus says, he's speaking to his disciples. He says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus is saying, you who are finite, you who have been affected by sin, you're, you're broken in, in your thinking. You don't see things as, as you ought to. And, and even if you did, you're still finite. You don't know all things. If you know how to do good things, if you know how to give good things, how much more does the perfect creator, God, know how to give good things? But, and, you know, when it, when it comes to the death of infants, I, as I said before, I, I really don't uh, understand that. Um, Kelly and I, years ago, between our second and third child, had, had a, a miscarriage. And, and I can tell you that uh, it was painful and it was a difficult, a very difficult time in our marriage. Um, it was confusing. And you might say, well, uh, do you understand why that now, after 20-some years, do you understand why that happened? And I, I would still say, I don't understand. I do not understand that. And I can honestly say, though, that we are not angry with God. We weren't angry then, and we're not angry now. Um, and here's why. Um, just like Timothy Keller said, he said, we know that um, there's things that we don't understand that make it appear like God doesn't care, but we know that he does. We know that things happen. It's not because he doesn't care. We know that. Because just as the firstborn sons of Egypt had to be put to death in order for Pharaoh to finally get it, to finally release his grip and to set God's people free from physical bondage. Listen to this. God the Father sent his son, who is called in Colossians 1.15, the firstborn of all creation. He put the firstborn son to death. His son to death so that his people could be set free, not just from physical bondage, but from the spiritual bondage of sin. That truth, that one truth right there, is what we need to build our lives on. It, answers, it doesn't answer why these things happen, but it, it lets me know it's not because God is evil or that he doesn't care. We, we serve a God who loves us, who's infinitely wiser than us. He's omnipotent. There's nothing he cannot do. And our God is good. Therefore, we can fully trust him, even when things in Scripture and life don't appear to make sense to us. All right, well, in chapter 12, we are 
moving into what is called the night of redemption, the night of the Passover, when God promises that he is going to deliver his people. He's going to finally, physically remove his people from Egypt. And God is going to give clear and precise instructions for how the people are to observe what we call Passover, or what they called Passover. Now, it's in, in chapter 12, it's so important that they get it right, God repeats it twice. And we're only going to look at the one that was read this morning. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm certain that the people, when they first heard, the very first time they heard what they were supposed to do, I am certain that it did not make sense to them what they were called to do. They're going to be, God said, I'm going to set you free, but you got to kill a lamb and do some, some things with its blood. Um, so it's going to require that they have faith and trust God that he knows what he is doing. So let's look at verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. This event that is about to happen, Passover, is so important and so monumental that God commands them to center their Jewish calendar around it. Verse 3, he says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to that, to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it, look at this, it says, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. So on the 10th, they, they take the, the, the lamb and they actually bring it into their home for four days. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So the first thing God tells them to do is choose a lamb. Choose a lamb that is without blemish. Now, this is important to understand. God is saying, do not, do not go out there and give me, get one of them blind and lame lambs that, you know, you were going to get rid of anyway. He says, bring me your best lamb. And then he says, let it live among you for four days. Let it dwell among you. No doubt during that time, those things are cute and adorable, and they would have grown attached to it, especially the children would have loved playing with that lamb as it dwelt among them. Does that have an echo to it? And he dwelt among us. It says, let it dwell among you for four days, and then in front of everyone in the household, kill it. Slit its throat and let its blood drain into a basin. Why? What is God doing here? What is the sign of the Passover lamb pointing to? Well, back in their day, immediately, the Hebrews would have been reminded 
that a substitute was needed to die in their place. God is judging sin. And I want to point out something here, that God is not saving Israel because they were sinless, because they had done something good, and he was like, okay, you're worthy for me to save you. He is saving them out of his mercy, out of his promise that he made back to Abraham, out of the covenant that he made. But he's not, he, is not, um, he is not saving them because they are a sinless people. This is important for us to understand in our culture right now, is that, um, see, the, the Hebrews could have thought, you know, my life has been so bad, and I have been so oppressed. I have been so beat down. I deserve better than this. God's gonna, God, that will make me right with God. That does not make us right with God, no matter how bad our lives are. We are still responsible for our actions. We need to understand that, church. As a church, we are responsible for our actions. And so God is not saving them because they are righteous. They need to understand, number one, that they need a substitute. Secondly, we see something from our vantage point. As we look back, we get to see something that they couldn't see. And that is, for 1,500 years, hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of lambs are going to be sacrificed on the day of Passover. Blood is going to run through the streets of, of Jerusalem. It is, it is one of those things where uh, this, they are, they are, there are hundreds and thousands and millions of sheep that are being killed every year. And then Jesus comes down to earth. He dwells among us. And John the Baptist points to him at the beginning of his ministry. And he says this, Behold, the Lamb of, not the Lamb that you brought, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the sin of the world. Now, this is important because God is requiring that they bring their best lamb. Don't miss that. He says, I want a lamb that's without blemish. Why? Because God is, has got a sign in these lambs. He's pointing that lamb to the lamb who is his best lamb. We're to give our best only because God is giving his best as a sacrifice for the sin of the world, for all who will receive it. That is the, the good news of the gospel. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 19 says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former, former ignorance. He's talking to people who are the church. He's, he's talking to people who have received the work of Christ. He's saying, because of what Jesus has done, you become obedient and don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. See that? But he who has called you, we've talked about this. God is calling unto himself a people out of the world. As he has called you to, to be separate, as be separate as he is separate. Be holy as he is holy. Verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed. That means rescued. That means redeemed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. And I love this. 
not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And here it is, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The Passover lamb points to the Son of God, Jesus himself. So, God tells Moses, tell the people, choose a lamb, sacrifice the lamb. Verse 7, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Now, it's important to understand that it was not enough just to sacrifice, to sacrifice the lamb. The blood had to be applied. The blood had to mark them. They had to mark themselves with the blood. Now, I've got a, I think there's a picture of, of what it could have looked like. It said to, to mark the lentil, that would be the top bar, to mark the sides. And if you've seen this before, this might be the first time, I don't know, but can you see the cross of Jesus? The, the sides where his hands would be, the top where his head would be, and as you brought the blood, it would drip down. Can you see the cross? That is, a, that is a picture of the Old Testament. Verse 22, now we're not going to, this is in the other account that's in chapter 12 of the Passover. Moses adds something here, or it's, it's more detail here. He says, none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. So basically what he says is once you go inside, after you've put the blood on, close the door, do not go back outside. Choose a lamb, sacrifice the lamb, mark the door, remain inside. In other words, don't go out looking for another way of salvation. Okay, this is the, this is the one way that God has instituted for you to be saved, for your firstborn to be saved. Don't come up with your own way of salvation. Don't go back to Egypt. Don't go to them seeking for them to help you. God has already provided the way through the Passover lamb. This is a clear picture of our salvation, isn't it? When we come to Jesus, it's not enough just to know that he died on the cross for, for our sins. We must apply that, personally apply the blood by trusting that he died for us and believing that and remaining with him. You know how you remain in the house is by saying, you know, there is no other thing that I'm looking for to save myself. I'm resting in what Jesus did. I'm trusting in what he, he, he did. Verse 8 says this, They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall not... Uh, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. And then verse 11, he's going to tell them how they are to eat it. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. He says, choose the lamb, sacrifice the lamb, mark the door, remain inside. And here's what he's saying in the way that he tells them to eat. He says, be ready. 
be ready. This is a, um, a, a, um, a call to be ready because they don't know when the Lord is going to say, open your door, it's time to go. They need to be ready because at any moment salvation could come. And again, this is a memorial. This is a sign that points to the truth that the king of the Jews is coming back. We don't know when, but when he comes back, he said, I'm going to bring judgment, but I'm also going to bring reward for those who are in the house that have marked their houses with blood and are waiting for me, that are ready. Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 36 through 44, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days, before the, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered into the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. That's what the Lord has called them in the Passover to do, to choose a lamb, to sacrifice the lamb, mark the door, apply the blood to the door, remain inside and be ready. Wait. Patiently wait. Do not go outside. Don't go looking for anything. Wait. I'm coming. And when I do, be ready. Verse 12 says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you. This is my favorite part of the Passover. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. This is why it's called Passover. I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of, of Egypt. This is clearly uh, a sign of remembrance. This is, this is showing that God is a God who keeps his covenant. He keeps his word. What he says he will do. He says this, and he's saying this basically, when I see that blood on your doors and it closed and you're inside, it's going to be a sign to me. It's going to be a sign to me that you trust me. It's going to be a, a sign to me that you trust me because you've obeyed me. And he's, he also says, it's a sign to me who my people are. My people will be under the blood. When he sees the blood, he will pass over and they will not be destroyed. Well, in verse 29, we're going to jump down to 29 and, sit, and we're going to read what happens. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, 
from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. If you're taking notes, this is where you write God's word fulfilled. God's word fulfilled. This is what God told Moses at the burning bush. This is what I'm going to do. Actually, he told this to Abraham. God's word is fulfilled. And Pharaoh is doing exactly what God said. He is driving them out. He's like, get out of here. Verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. That's important. I'm going to read that again. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. I, as I was reading this, I was thinking, you know, they're, they're taking their gold and silver. I was thinking, I wonder if they were just taking back what had been taken from them. It could be. The people of Israel did what Moses told them. Verse 36, And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. This also is a place that we write God's word fulfilled. God said, this is going to happen before it happened. And the people, verse 37, of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men, 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Verse 50, we're going to jump down. It says, all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Now, I want to say, make it just a kind of a side note here about the Egyptians. Um, what You might be thinking, well, what if you were an Egyptian and you saw what God was doing, and you're like, I believe, I believe that, that what he's doing, I don't want to be a part of what Pharaoh's doing. Did you know that in, this, in the passage, chapter 12, and you can go, go back and read it, God shows that anyone that wants to come and be a part of his people could become circumcised, and then they could, could partake of, of the uh, Passover meal. If you're willing to bow your knee and become one of the children of God. So there's, a, there's also a part in, in uh, chapter 12 where it says that there was a group of people that were not, basically that were not Hebrews who went out with them. And, it, and some scholars believe that some of these Egyptians saw what happened and they did what they were supposed to do. They did what needed to be done in order to be saved. So my point to you is that salvation, and we're going to see this, uh, some of the laws that God is going to give in Deuteronomy are, are, are laws that say, you know, when, you're, when you have a, a, um, an alien come and live amongst you in Israel, 
Take care of them. Why? Because remember how you were treated back in Egypt? He, they, they refer back to Egypt. God is a, a wonderful, good God that wants to include anyone. This is good news back then. It's good news today. He will include anyone who will come by the blood. Now, at the beginning of this message, I mentioned that the king of the Jews is coming back. And when he was living among us, he prophesied um, at least five things. Number one, he said, you know what? I'm going to die. I'm going to die for your sins. I'm going to be the Passover lamb that dies for your sins. I'm going to pay for it so that you don't have to to pay for your sins. Secondly, he said, I'm going to die and be buried. But I'm not going to stay dead. Number three, I'm going to be raised from the dead. I'm going to come back to life. Number four, he said, I'm going to ascend into heaven. And then there was a fifth one. He said, I'm coming back. I'm coming back to get rid of everything that I had. To, to take care of the physical things that I haven't taken care of. I've taken care of your sin. Now I'm going to take care of creation and renew it. He's already made good on four out of five. He is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And the Passover reminds us that God, although He judges sin, He also offers deliverance. He also offers deliverance, but there's only one way, and that's through the Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 that Christ is our Passover lamb. He has been sacrificed for us. So my question to to you this morning is, is Christ your Passover lamb? Not do you just know that he died on the cross for you, but have you taken the blood Have you applied it to your house, as it were? Have you put your faith in Him? Have you turned away from the gods of Egypt and turned to Him and Him only? You are my only salvation. Are you waiting for Him to return? Those are questions that we need to, as believers, as the church, need to be asking ourselves. And maybe this morning you're saying, you know, I never have. I never have put my faith in him. I want to encourage you this morning that you can turn away from sin, your sin, and turn to him and cry out to him and ask him to save you and to cleanse you of all your your sin, all of your unrighteousness. Lord Jesus, be my Passover lamb. I want to trust in you today. If you do that today, he will fill you with his Holy Spirit. He will forgive you of your sins and you will be a part of his covenant people. I want to encourage you, if you've never done that, don't, don't leave here today without making Jesus your Passover lamb. Now, for the rest of us, the church who already has, are you still in the house? Now, this is the part that uh, we need to examine ourselves because you may have applied the blood, but is the blood, has it dried and kind of you've left the house and you're not really, it's not fresh in you? We talked about this last week. Jesus says you've left your first love. Today is a day that we want to, every day that we, uh, we wake up, but especially on a Sunday, we want to come back and examine our lives. Where are we right now, church? Where are you? I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about our church uh, in a lot of, for a lot of reasons, but one of them is I'm seeing, 
I'm seeing people coming back to God in ways of repentance and uh, of life and excitement. Um, this should be true of every church. Uh, I know this isn't just true of our church, but I'm excited to see it happening in our church. I'm talking to, to guys that are, that are uh, they're, they're realizing, hey, you know what? I haven't been doing, leading right. I haven't been parenting right. I haven't been living right. And, and I'm seeing people's lives being changed because they're turning to Jesus and being renewed. So each week we want to ask ourselves, are we freshly walking in the work of Jesus Christ?